Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 18th, 2018. This is episode 2149 of the Survival Podcast. 2149 on 118.18. And uh, it's a Thursday, so that means we're going to have a listener call show. And a little bit of a special episode, too. I have about a 12, 13-minute segment with um, uh, Rachel Goldsmith of the uh, Free State Project. She's their acting ex or interim executive director. And we're going to talk about Liberty Forum and Free State Project. And then I've got a whole bunch of questions. I'm going to try to be brief in my answers to keep the show into the, uh, the promised format of no more than 90 minutes for 99% of the shows through 2018. Uh, but here's what we're going to have a talk about. We're going to talk about automation eliminating high-end engineering jobs in a real-world situation, like a guy saying, I work here, and this is what's happening, and some lessons from that. Uh, we're going to have a question on pricing work for friends when you're a professional service provider. Well, that can be touchy. Uh, Why do I think there will, will be no EMP attack ever? I had a question on that, and uh, I wish I could find the Harris rant on that, because Harris did an incredible job. Uh, Stephen Harris just eviscerated it. I'm going to give you the short answer, though. Um, I have a question on composting dog poo safely. Uh, a question on what are the easiest microgreens to grow. Uh, organic seeds, are they worth the premium? Uh, some gardening uh, tips and some seed source tips from a listener. And I'm going to say hold fire on uh, one of the suppliers at least and give me the weekend. I, I'm kind of on fire with getting you guys discounts, and I'll tell you about a new one here in a bit as well. Uh, and then what is the space-time ROI on aquaponics versus in-ground gardening? All that more in just a bit. Uh, I do have an announcement before we uh, we bring on Rachel, though. Uh, I do have a new um, discount vendor for you through the MSB to tell you about. It's OMG Leatherworks. It's run by a gentleman named Jeff Deer. And Jeff has been a longtime friend of the show and of the Spirico family. And he has really ventured out and really built up his leather business uh, over the last year. And uh, even though he's a friend... You know, I kind of required a certain amount of time in business before I was willing to bring him on officially as a sponsor. But he's made some amazing products for me. I have uh, all three of my dogs were collars that were made by Jeff. And the quality of those collars, and I've had them for like six months now. That was another thing, too. Like, does it, does it hold up? Um, have really sold me on Jeff. And Jeff's now like basically my, my personal leather worker. If I need something done with leather, I'm going to Jeff. Whether it's something off his, you know, off the shelf products or I want some custom made, you know, Jeff is now to my leather work as Patrick Rorman is to my knife work. If I want a certain kind of knife made, I'm not going anywhere else. I'm going to Patrick. So I worked out a deal with Jeff. You guys get 10% off of OMG Leather Works and it's omgleatherworks.com. Discount code is already in the MSB. And I, did I say I was on fire when it came to getting you guys discounts this year? Guess what? Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to bring you another discount vendor. I, I'm telling you, guys, if you haven't joined the MSB yet, if I bet you if you can't get your money back with the discounts that are in there now, by February there'll be discounts in there that'll work for you. Uh, I'm beating people up. I'm kicking down doors when I'm not getting responded from people because the door's closed. I'm taking the hinges off. I've kind of decided for like the first 60 to 90 days of 2018, I'm going to dust off Jack Spirico, the salesman. 
Uh, for those of you that don't know, I came up in sales and marketing. Uh, I was the number one sales manager for Fluke Networks for three years in a row. That's a $500 million company. And I've, I've gone back into that kind of that that stage in my life and using those techniques. And whatever I got to do to get through to the right person, I'm going to get through to the right person and I'm going to get you guys discounts. And when they offer something, I'm going to push back and try to get a little bit more. So that's kind of my segment for MSB today. If you're not a member, please consider joining. And remember, if you want that product to be an even better deal, if you have done service to our nation at home or abroad, either as a first responder, like an EMT, paramedic, etc., a law enforcement officer, military personnel, or the Peace Corps, you qualify for a discount. Just email me before, not after you join, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. And uh, put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service. One or two sentences is all I need. And I'll get you that code back to that before, not after you join. Anyway, with that, I wanted to take just a moment and, uh, and bring uh, Rachel Goldsmith of the Free State Project on with us. She's a really awesome lady. She's going to talk to us today about the Free State Project, Liberty Forum, where I'll be speaking. Uh, and it's going to be a fantastic, fantastic event. Here to talk more about it and the work that they do in general, Rachel Goldsmith. Rachel, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you on. I think my, my audience is fairly well informed of what the Free State Project is, but, but we literally get new listeners every day. So before we talk about Liberty Forum, can you just kind of tell people what, what is the Free State Project, what is it all about, and what does it mean for liberty in our, in our lifetime, as you guys put it? Absolutely. So the Free State Project is a migratory movement of liberty lovers to New Hampshire. Uh, the motto here is already live free or die, and we want to make sure that that motto continues to be true. Um, we have uh, an assurance contract of over 20,000 people who have all signed saying that they're going to move here. We've already got 5,000 feet on the ground um, getting active in legislative affairs, in the economic scene, and of course, Uh, putting together amazing events um, to get people organized and socially uh, on board, like Liberty Forum. Very cool. And I, could you maybe just speak just a little bit about why New Hampshire was chosen and why, like, you know, 5,000 people didn't do much to the Texas state legislature, but things work a little bit differently in New Hampshire, which is a big part of why it was chosen. Yeah, New Hampshire... Um, we, so the FSP chose New Hampshire way back in 2003 in part because uh, it has a border with the ocean, um, which we thought was important. And also I think a really big, big reason is that, as you're kind of alluding to, we have the highest ratio of um, legislative representative to civilian or citizen anywhere in the free world, actually. Um, any, any government in the entire world Uh, New Hampshire has the highest ratio, which is a really exciting thing to be able to say that you can, you know, have a cup of coffee with your representative and accuse them of supporting <laughs> fascism. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the most diplomatic way to do it, but uh, I do know there's some people there that go that do take that approach, and some of them I really, really enjoy watching them do too. So, uh, so we have Liberty Forum coming up. I'll be there speaking, uh, doing the intro keynote and some other sessions. Tell us, tell us kind of about Liberty Forum, what it's about, and you know, I think another part would be. Not only what it's about and what it means for Free State Project, but why people might want to come that aren't necessarily planning to move to New Hampshire, may know they're not going to move to New Hampshire, that might have to travel a bit. I mean, 
I think there's a tremendous value in being there and supporting this movement and just in meeting people. Yeah, Liberty Forum this year is February 8, 9, and 10. Um, we have some amazing speakers lined up. You, obviously, which we're super excited about. Lou Perez, uh, Preston Byrne, who is a Bitcoin lawyer, uh, not your father's lawyer. Um, and I think what's really exciting about this conference, especially relative to other Liberty conferences and other you know, business or professional conferences, is that we're really promoting the opportunity to network with some high-level Liberty thinkers. Um, in fact, every single element of this conference is designed to get the attendee sort of up close and personal with some really interesting people. Um, not only do we have very intimate speaking sessions planned, uh, kind of short bursts of high-level thought, but we're also encouraging our attendees to network with um, some of the speakers and sponsor reps at off-site dinners. Um, and I know that you're going to be holed up at the uh, Radisson's restaurant, the, the bar there, which I'm really excited to have a drink with you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've always tried to make it my point to when I do one of these things to not be the speaker that comes in with the speaker's engagement that says, you know, make sure the M&Ms have the green ones picked out and are in my room and it's <laughs> set to 71 degrees and you, you fly in, you speak. As we say in sales, you show up, you throw up and you leave. Um, I try to hang out like as much as possible. I think we're going to call uh, Liberty High Mass in the bar, and, and myself, uh, Reverend Jack, and Deacon David will be in there preaching the gospel of liberty. That should be fun. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get more swelled up as we drink a little bit more than buy, like our founders did, by the way. Um, but, but I've always noticed that about Liberty Forum, and I've, I've tried to work and do some connecting uh, for Christine, who's setting up everything this year as a coordinator, to, to bring in more people like that because – that's what you want when you go to one of these things. People go to these things to meet somebody, and I don't mean to say anything negative about anybody doing anything in the Liberty Movement because we need them all, but I've seen some big conferences where, like, there's this list of, like, 40 speakers, and they're all, like, you know, high-level guys that are on mainstream media and stuff like that or what have you, and you, you, don't, you can't get five seconds to talk to one of them, let alone several of them. But, like, you know, Tom Woods is not exactly an unknown, and I remember one of the years that I spoke in the past, Tom was there, and he did the same type of thing I did. He wasn't so much a hang-out-the-bar guy, but he hung out in the, the, the lobby. He spoke to anybody that wanted to speak to him for as, as long as they wanted to speak with, you know, some, sometimes when you're in that position, you have to, like, I'm sorry, I have to talk to this person now, so you're fair. But I've always noticed that about Free State. And another thing I've noticed is, you know, speakers are one thing, but some of the people that show up as attendees, you start talking to someone, you're like, wow, I'm really glad I got to meet this person. Well, that's one of the values of this community in general. I mean, of course, it's highlighted especially at Liberty Forum and at Porkfest where uh, everyone really gets together and, and is able to have those kind of conversations. But, I mean, when I moved here, we immediately uh, were welcomed in the community and went from having – very surface-level conversations with our friends and our groups back where I come from in Philly to getting into, like, really deep conversations uh, almost without that being, like, the intent of the conversation. Like, you meet someone, you're sitting down for coffee, and all of a sudden you're talking about taxation of theft. I mean, it's a really, really amazing <laughs> place to be. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that I've been trying to, to say over the years, and I think I've been supporting you guys for, like, eight, nine years now, is that even though I probably won't ever leave Texas, your success is important to me. In the end, this is a republic, and we are supposed to be 50 liberties of liberty. 
And if you've noticed certain things in the liberty movement, and I know like some people seem to think like the only thing in the liberty movement that's important is cannabis, right? And it's not, but it is a good test bed. And it took one state to step out and do it and then take it even further than medical and say we're going to make it recreational. And then other states started to follow along because they saw the benefit in it. And then the people that were using fear to prevent it they're like, okay, well, why, why isn't everybody throwing their baby out of a window in the 17th floor in Colorado? Like, you know, like all of these horror stories, this is not happening. Concealed carry is an example of that. Open carry is an example of that. When we pushed for, we pushed for constitutional carry here in Texas. We didn't get it, but we did get open carry. And when they're like, you know, the whole world's going to know it. Wait, hold on. Here's a whole list of states doing this already. So if, yeah, I mean, that's, so, a, that's so, another point for New Hampshire is we do have con carry. And one of the really cool things is that, you know, anyone can become a representative and any representative can put any bill up that there is their passion issue. So we have one recent representative uh, who put up a bill to no longer require licenses to drive non-commercial vehicles on the road, basically saying, you know, people should be able to drive. If you get into an accident, you need to deal with that. Um, but it shouldn't be that the government is granting you permission to operate a vehicle that you own. Um, so there's all these really fun little passion pockets here that uh, I think we get to like really explore and delve into when we have these kinds of conversations. See, and your guys that do that up there are smart, too. You'll put some libertarians on the ballot and they might win. But you'll go in and you say, okay, where, where is this, this particular uh, – Region or whatever you call it, you're most vulnerable uh, to to getting one of our people in. And if you got to run as a Democrat, run as a Democrat. You got to run as a Republican, you got to run as a Republican. You want to run one of each? Let's do that. And and I think that's the way to make change. Like the 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 founders warned us that party loyalty would destroy the republic. And and so it's kind of like party agnosticism that is the the salvation of it. Yeah, we're, I mean, we have actually uh, three LP reps uh, in the state house right now. Um, so we're very much in the you know, non-binary type of direction here in New Hampshire. Uh, we have a couple of people who are coming up to the reform talking about approval voting, um, other types of uh, like non-binary voting methods and, and ways that we can make democracy a little bit more representative of the people that actually live here. Very cool. So if people come to Liberty Forum, kind of, can you give us kind of like the breakdown of like what they should expect, like, you know, kind of the, the, the basic schedule, speakers, are there going to be multiple tracks this year? How's that going to break down? Yeah, so in the morning we'll have um, a series of micro keynotes. Basically, everyone will all be together in the same place. Um, we'll be engaging in a single a single stream dialogue, uh, and then we'll all sit down for lunch together. And then in the afternoon, we have breakout sessions where you can take what you heard earlier, one of those things that you didn't get quite as much of your teeth into, um, and break out into smaller groups and really hash out what that issue or what that uh, type of conversation means to you, and then how you can walk away from this event with activism that you can bring into your daily life whether that be um, letters to the editor, you know, writing those kinds of things better, whether that be learning more about crypto and how to get your money out of the central banking system, whether it be, uh, you know, finding a way to be self-sufficient in your property. Like all of these things we're going to be able to um, sample in the morning and then really like eat up in the afternoon. 
Um, so that's pretty fun. Well, and, and folks, remember, if you want to come, they have uh, given us a special discount code. It's TSP10, 10% off all tickets. And, you know, if I can make my recommendation, I would go with the all-out ticket with the, 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 the dinners and the keynotes and everything. It's not that much more, and it is, it's totally worth it to have exposure. And it just, it, it's just really a fun experience. Uh, Rachel, I spoke, I think, three times prior at Liberty Forum. I haven't been up your way for, I guess, three or four years now. I'm really looking forward to coming back, and I think it's going to be one of the best Liberty Forums ever. And I appreciate you being on the air with us for a bit today to talk about it. Thanks again for having me. It was great to talk to you uh, by phone, and I look forward to meeting you in person. We'll see you, I guess, in just a few weeks. All right. See you then. All right, guys. I thought it was important to get her on because we're only a few weeks out from this now, and I know many of you have been kicking the tires about should I go, should I go. Man, I'm telling you, it will be the best money and time investment you make this year if you come on out. You'll make at least one connection that will pay you dividends for the rest of your life. I, I promise you. It is being part of a group of some of the most transformational people that you can get around. It, it's If you've been to my workshops, you get around like 50 people that get it. If you go to Free State Project, you get around about 500 people that get it. Odds are one or two of them, you guys are gonna, you guys are going to hit it off. And I've seen businesses built out of meetings at Liberty Forum. I've seen major projects and initiatives come out of it. It is, you, you got to think about it this way. If Jack Spierko is willing to shut down his show, get on an airplane, and fly to New Hampshire in February for the fourth time now to support something that he wants to support but will probably never be a direct part of, it cannot be something that's just work-a-day, everyday type of thing. It's got to be special because you know, guys, I don't do a lot of this. I, I support causes that I believe in, and I don't take a speaker fee. I basically say, cover my expenses. I will promote this for you. I will come do it for you. That's my contribution to your movement, and I'd love for you to be part of it. And again, you can get 10% off with the discount code. Link and the discount code are in today's show notes. Now, before I take your first call, uh, I do have a very brief little announcement. I've been hearing from some people with display problems at, on the Survival Podcast website, specifically with some versions of Android and things like that. We know. It's an old theme that the site design is built on. Um, it's not adaptive enough to work across all the, the mobile platforms, and as things have changed, the problem's gotten worse. I have Nicole Sauce working on a bid for me to basically leave the site, look as much like it is. I don't really want to redesign or nothing, but to turn it into a more adaptive site that will work better for you. So if you're having display issues, try a different browser, uh, try a different device, use our app to access the site and, the, and, and, and what have you. You can use the Android app or you can use the uh, iPhone app, and you can get most of what you need that way. Uh, but if you're having any problems, I'm sorry, we're working on it. I'm not opposed to spending the money on it. I just have to get a bid back from Nicole, and then she needs the time to do the work for me. All right? Anyway, with that, let's take your first call, this one on automation. Hey, Jack. I am listening to episode 2103, talking about automation, all about power generation and storage. I've been thinking about calling you in for a while, and I'll tell you about this. I am a mechanical engineer. I've been out of school for about 10 years now, working in the aerospace market on building heat exchangers. We do the things that are more difficult and therefore more expensive than most of the other companies out there. 
And it just came to our knowledge, our attention within the past couple of weeks, that a project we lost about nine months ago, we just got quotes from a major aircraft engine manufacturer uh, who initially retrieved or uh, took those jobs back from us, uh, quotes to have receiving 3D printed heat exchangers from this company. They want us to weld something onto it, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And then they want us to test them and ship them back. What that means for me is that there's no more need for the engineer at this company to design the heat exchanger. There's no more need for the manufacturing engineer to help manufacture the, the heat exchanger. There's no more need for the braze operator. There's no more need for the people out there who are running the milling, well, I guess the milling machines are about the only place where there is someone um, that needs that they need right now. Uh, but that, you know, with the increase in technology, that will be removed as well. So I look at this, and I say that the writing's on the wall. Um, there's 120 people, 180 people that work where I'm at, and uh, pretty soon most of those people are going to be out of a job. I, I give it five to ten years. Um, five years, I think, might be pretty accurate, although they say that we've got a lot of legacy work that will stick around for a while. But I'm, I've got four kids. You know, I'm, I'm worried. I'm scared. I'm looking around at the industry saying, what can I do that's not going to be replaced by 3D printing? So I've got my resume out there now, um, trying to figure out how I can get ahead of the curve. So it's here. The future is with us. Uh, look out before it hits you in the head like a two-by-four from Dumb and Dumber. Um, I don't know, maybe right now getting hit in the head and get some sense knocked into me. Uh, maybe that wouldn't be so bad either. Maybe I could come up with a better plan for the future. Do you have any thoughts or uh, if anyone wants to argue with you about what the future being here already, well, here's just another little... Unfortunately, you were right, Jack. So um, I appreciate your show and everything you guys were working on. Um, it certainly helped me to... to uh, be more resilient and able to provide for my family. So keep on doing what you're doing, and uh, please don't stop. Thank you, sir. Well, it's it's another example about some, of something that I've been talking about very heavily for, I guess, about two years now. And like everything on the show, it'll ebb and flow in cycles. I can only talk about something so often before you're like, yes, Jack, I know, the horse is dead. Please stop beating the hell out of it with a club. Um, but we do continue to talk about this on and off. And how it's going to affect people. I, I actually brought this on. Like, I don't need to say anything about the impact and what's going on because the caller did it for you. More to address the caller and people that are feeling like the caller. I'm looking around and I'm beginning to feel afraid. That's good, but let's let's use that fear as like a couple cups of coffee to wake you up in the morning, smack your face around a little bit, stretch. Okay, I'm awake. And then what we do with any fear with modern survival living is we channel the fear into action and thereby suppress the fear and turn it into results. The good news for those of you that are looking around at this world of automation and understanding the factual reality about the number of jobs eliminated is you are 5% or less of the people in the world right now. And that means that you have the ability to keep looking and keep adapting and keep changing and stay ahead of the situation. I'm not going to say that that alone is going to prevent you from being hurt by this at all. But I'm going to say it will make you more adaptable, more resilient, and more able to adapt to whatever's coming.
And there are two paths here. Uh, he mentioned legacy work. When I did technical recruiting, we had a technical recruiting company, we had guys that were doing coding from computer-based technologies that have not changed since the 1980s because they were the only, there was like a handful in the world that could work on these legacy systems. And there is something about being able to work on those old legacy systems. Now, the other side of this, though, of course, is adapting to the new. And I would much rather be adapting to the new than clinging to that legacy. Um, but if you can find the parts of legacy stuff, no matter what the industry is, that are so embedded that as everybody else is chasing the new tech, you start to have people retire, leave the industry, etc. Nobody has any experience with it anymore. And not maybe throw yourself into it, but maintain a little bit of hands-on with it or a little bit of knowledge about it you might find in the future an opportunity to do that same thing. But please be aware and don't think that your job is safe just because it's an engineering job. Like, who else is going to design an engineer and build, well, apparently a 3D printer, all right? And uh, then they'll send it to these guys who used to do the whole thing just to do some, some tests on it. And what do you want to bet that they're going to use that data to build another automated process that eliminates the need even for that? Like the guy said, I don't really know why they're sending it to us to do this. I know why they're sending it to you to do it. Because you're certified, you can do it, etc. They won't have any problems. It offloads risk. And it gives them a baseline. They'll take that baseline and they'll build an automated process to replace it. And that's what you're going to start seeing. You're going to think, oh, we can work with this and we can work with that. And, and it'll, you know, be, they're still going to use us for this and they're still going to use us for that. But I'm going to tell you right now what they're going to use you for is for a baseline to develop systems to completely replace and eliminate the need for you. And they'll do that as soon as it's most beneficial to them to do that. It could be five years or ten, I don't know. But it's coming, and it's coming in every sector. Be awake, be alert, use the fear to wake up, then channel the fear to action. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name is Aaron. I live in upstate New York. Uh, I'm an independently employed contractor. I uh, enjoy my job. The question is, how do you price work for friends? I come from a tight, close-knit community, and friends and family expect better pricing, yet I still got to make a living. How do you do that? Thank you so much for enhancing your life with my show. Have a great day. Okay, well, this is, uh, this is a touchy subject, and uh, I've had to deal with it in my own life, especially when it comes to, like, you know, consulting type stuff and all, especially when I used to do it as a living. And you have people that think just because they're your friend, they can just take eight hours of your time to deeply consult inside their business. Um, I have friends that are very skilled in particular trades and crafts, and I think it largely depends. If it's something you're doing together that's fun and enjoyable and you want to be part of, then you can do it for very little to nothing because it's like an extension of your hobby and, and friendship. If it's, hey, my so-and-so doesn't work and I need you to come fix it, then I think you have to price it very close to the where, where you price it for everybody else, especially if it's going to in any way take away your time from servicing your customers. So I have a friend who's done a lot to help me who bills very, very high wages to his customers has never charged me a dime. Um, but we're when we do a project like that, we're working on it together as friends, and 
I don't have any expectation that anything's going to get done uh, for me as something I'm entitled to. And you can have friends and family that are like that, but the majority won't be. The majority won't be. The majority will be takers, even amongst family. I'm sorry, it's just the case. So there's there's the, the friends and family discount that's 10 points, maybe. I don't know. There's the friends and family discount that this is how much this is, but I'll work you in today and anybody else would have to wait till next week. That's also a type of friends and family discount. And, and there are people who think they qualify that don't. And only you can determine who they are. But when you start getting, well, I know so-and-so who knows so-and-so, and he'll give you a good price, yeah, here's my good price. My price to everybody's good. If it's your mom, right, if it's your best friend or one of your really tight inner circle people, you may help them out a little differently. But I think that the way you have to be when you're giving somebody any kind of significant reduction in price, it has to be something that you look at more as a favor And it has to be done on your own time instead of your business's time. And with entrepreneurs, especially like one-man shows, we have a hard time separating that sometimes. And the way that's separated is, if I didn't need money, would I be here doing this? Well, if I was off today for any other reason, would I go do this if my job was something totally different? And if you're in that situation, then you can do things very low cost or as a favor Uh, or, you know, they pay for parts and you provide expertise and, and installation. But if they're like phoning you up and asking you to do something that you do for a living every day and they have an expectation of when it's going to start, when it's going to stop, etc., you have to build them. And I, I guess you could put it this way. I'm very good friends with Jeff Deere, who I brought on today as an MSB member for OMG Leatherworks. And I am sure if I said, Jeff, I will get you exposure on the air if you make me three dog collars, he would have probably done it. I probably could have guilted him into doing it, but I said, how much does it cost? He gave me a price. I gave him money. The people that you are willing to go the extra mile for should be the people that are going to treat you like that out of the gate, not the ones that are going to expect something out of the gate. You know, There's a big difference between being a car salesman who, when your brother comes in, you just go ahead and give them the best discount you can ever possibly get them. And being a one-man show that's providing services that now that time's being taken up by you can't you can't let it get out of hand and you should set the set the expectation fairly high that there's 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 advice and there's friendship and there's hobby and then there's you want me to come out in the middle of the workday and fix your hot water heater I build this much maybe you give five percent off you know um, you know maybe you see I would say friends and family like more like You know what? I'll tell you what. If you can wait till I have a job in your area, then maybe I can do it really easy, quick, and it won't cost much at all. But if you need it the way my customers need it, and you're going to interfere with my customers, you got to pay full price or damn close. And people that don't understand that, I, I, I know this is going to sound, it's going to sound bad, but people that don't understand that, that have any expectation otherwise, you don't need them in your lives. Now again, there's a there's a You're talking to your son, your daughter, your mom who, who needs something. That's different. Everybody else, I've said my piece. Let's take another one. Jack, why will there not be an EMP attack? Jack, on episode 2132, you had a listener call that you just quickly went over. Uh, he was asking about protecting a car. 
from an EMP attack, and you just kind of dismissed it, saying that would never happen, um, regardless of the the prepper fiction and so forth. And I was wondering if you could expound on why um, that'll never happen. Congress did a study on it um, that Newt Gingrich mentions uh, in a in a, a foreword of a book that I read and uh he he seems to think it was it was pretty um plausible. So I was just wondering if you could expand on why you think that would never happen. Enjoy the show. Thanks, man. You know on this one, Stephen Harris, like I said, did a rant and I I tried to find it today and I, I just could. If anybody has any idea what episode that is, I'd love to just play that again for you to put this issue to bed once again. But Here's a couple reasons I say just don't even worry about EMP. Just don't worry about it. Number one, if we had a full-scale EMP attack and you put your transistor radio in a Faraday cage, I don't know how much you really think you've done for yourself. Uh, or if you've, you've grounded your garage and you think you've protected your vehicle or what have you, um, we're in a world of hurt. You're not going to be driving around anyway. Um, so there's the circle of influence, circle of concern thing there to a degree. But more on this, it's just the practicality of it. So you can't just take the type of nuclear weapon that North Korea claims to have and do a wide-scale EMP. Whenever there's a nuclear detonation, there's some level of an electromagnetic pulse, but it's actually inherently quite limited in what it can do. You need a fission weapon, the type of nuclear weapon that nations like the United States and, and, and Russia have to be able to do this. Then the other thing is retaliation. There's a reason that Russia, at the time the Soviet Union and the United States, didn't start lobbing nuclear weapons at each other. Mutually assured destruction. The actors that would attempt something like you're talking about here, like, let's say, in North Korea, and I don't think that they would, but that you would, you would single out, or in Iran, right? Okay, so they will never have, they, let's say this, they will never have, the type of nuclear arsenals that the United States and, and Russia have today, let alone the type of arsenals that we had during the Cold War. So it's it's not mutually assured destruction if you commit an EMP attack on the United States. It's self-assured destruction. If Iran somehow got a hold of weapons that were capable of doing a significant EMP nuclear strike on the United States of America, our military equipment is protected from this. And certainly our missiles that are on submarines and in silos are protected from this. And Iran would be a glass factory in about 15 and a half minutes after it happened. And they know that. And contrary to what you've been led to believe, these people that run these countries are not lunatics. They're not maniacs. And I think anybody that's as uh, religiously nuts as the Iranians are is nuts to do. But they are, when it comes to self-preservation, they are not complete total madmen that don't care what happens to them and their stuff and their countries. Neither is Kim Jong-un. I'm telling you. This is a non-starter. And when, well, Newt Gingrich wrote a forward for a, I don't give a flying shit. Okay. These are people that make money selling to you out of fear. And the number one fear merchant in the world is the United States government. And of course they want you to be afraid of this and afraid of that and afraid of this. Because what happens when you're afraid? You capitulate. You do whatever you need to do. Oh, please help us. You some more liberty here. You can have it. Put the chain a little tighter around my neck. Just let me breathe. There are things to be concerned about. But you should be more concerned about automation replacing your job 
than an EMP from North Korea. And I don't care who says what. And when you rely on a person who writes a book and makes money by selling it to provide you the information about why you should be afraid about what the book's about, Fox, Hen House, draw the connection yourself. Let's take another one. Uh, hello. Um, my question is, uh, I'm wondering if dog poop is uh, uses fertilizer for a garden is more beneficial than it is harmful. And I was thinking of this because I was, I was thinking of making off, you know, making some money uh, off picking up other, you know, neighbors' uh, dogs' poo uh, and then using it as fertilizer for a garden. Thank you. Okay, there are people that say, "Yo, no, you can't compost dog manure." Um, I'm going to say you, you should not compost dog manure the way that you compost chicken manure or cow manure or things like that. Dogs' diets, especially the modern dog, fed modern dog food, are very similar to the diets of human beings. Um, and they're also on some level of carnivore. They're eating some level of meat product, even in that dry cereal crap that most people feed their dogs. And dog manure is pretty dank and rank, and so is human manure. So you absolutely can process dog manure into good quality usable compost. And it should be treated the way you would treat human manure. So what I would recommend if you want to compost dog manure is there's a, a, a book called a human manure guidebook or something. I'll look it up. It's on Amazon for you. Get that book and build your system based on it. And what you're really looking at is about a one year cycle. At one year, you have eliminated pathogens because that's the problem is that there are pathogenic organisms that can exist in human manure, dog manure, other ca uh, carnivores manure, omnivores manures that, that really need a much different breakdown process to be completely safe. There's also a very simple way to do it. It's actually incredibly simple. And it would be simply you get like the big wheelie carts, So like these are the garbage cans that a lot of people like like I have, uh, where we have a garbage service, not the uh, city to just pick bags up, and they give you a wheelie, you know, like some like ninety gallon garbage can. You get something like that, and you get a good supply of sawdust, and you can probably find some some company around you somewhere that will give you all the sawdust that you can possibly handle. And for every amount of dog poo that goes in that cart, an equal amount of dog uh, 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 carbon in the form of sawdust goes in there. And when that tank, when that thing gets full, you roll it into the shade somewhere, put a date on it, and a year later come back and dump it out. And it'll be fine. Uh, this is done in a lot of permaculture establishments with human manure, where they build basically like an outhouse that you kind of walk up so you're above the thing and you take a dump in it, and there's a big bucket of sawdust. You just grab a big handful and drop it in every time you go. And it really does keep the stink down, and it really does work. And it's not a perfect situation as far as smell, but it's, it's not bad. Now, you know, the total amount that you would be, I don't know, man. It depends on how many dogs you're picking up after and how big they are. Are they max dogs or Lucy dogs, so to say, right? But that's it. And I would, I would just get the human newer handbook and I would build your system on that. And I, I can't see how it would ever be a problem. Let's take another one. Jack, what's the uh, easiest microgreen to grow? Background. Um, my son has to do a science fair project and his idea was to um, grow microgreens and, under different conditions and, you know, use that as his experiment. So need something easy um, to grow. 
So, um, and I guess what's the smallest scale you could grow it in? I'm thinking something like an egg carton, like the lid to an egg carton. We have plastic egg cartons. Use the lid to a plastic egg carton. Uh, you know, do uh, do like nine of them, so that we have three sets of three. You know, the control might be uh, a grow light with natural light bulbs in it, and then we could change the um, change the color of the light. That's kind of his idea, anyways. So I uh, wanted to run that by you, see what's the small scale that you think we could do that, and what's the equipment, and what seeds. Thank you very much. Bye. Um, this is easy. Daikon radish and or black oil sunflower. Uh, they're, they're probably the two easiest and most accessible. And as I've said before, I don't have a problem using the black oil sunflower flower that you buy for birds as a microgreen, especially for a school experiment. Uh, so you can probably get that anywhere. With that said, only black oil. So like if it's a mix, I would not because you don't know what else is in there. But I have verified and my friend has verified that they just don't spray black oil sunflower with anything. And so again, it's a honey badger plant like I talked about before. Uh, here's your, your success formula. 24 hours before you're going to put the seeds into your tray, put them into a cup, a jar, whatever, and soak them overnight. Uh, then once they, when you put, you build your tray, whatever you're going to grow them in, um, compact that soil down nice and tight, put the seed on top, do not bury it, cover it with like a paper towel, and put another tray on top of it with a little bit of weight is a good idea. And when they start to germinate and actually push up that other tray, then you can pull that paper towel off, don't be alarmed, a whole mess of them are going to come off. It won't matter. It'll fill back in and put them under whatever lights you're going to grow them. And then, of course, he can come up with whatever conditions he wants to. But if you have warm temperatures, let's say indoor temperatures in the 70s, you're looking at black oil sunflower being ready for harvest in somewhere between 6 to 10 days. Uh, and daikon in about the same, you know, probably more like 8 to 11 days. So if he's doing an experiment, he can get a lot of flushes through of different things over, let's say, a 30-day period. So th that's, there's, I can't, none of them are that hard. A few of them have some intricacies and stuff like that. Uh, but daikon and black oil are both large, fast-growing, soak well, and produce a plant that's large enough to easily work with. Uh, and that will give you, since it is a fairly large microgreen, a good Uh, scale level for comparison to other methods. In other words, if there's something really, really tiny anyway, you might not notice much difference even if one is 20% larger, especially with kids, right? But if you have something that grows, you know, to a couple inches, well, 20% is enough to really notice a difference or what have you. Or if there's different colors or veins visible, or it's, since it's larger, it's easier to see your variances. All right, so that'll do you. And I think that that's a good general question because if you want to know the easiest thing to start producing some salad for yourself, uh, which is some, you know, some TH shop lights and a couple of little trays, daikon radish and black oil sunflower. And you can be eating food you grew for yourself next week. Any of you. You don't have to do it for a living. It doesn't have to be for profit. It is a fantastic way. And they're both excellent microgreens. They're just outstanding microgreens. They really are. Uh, anyway, let's go ahead and uh, take another question. Hey, Jack. Is it worth paying extra for organic vegetable seeds? Details. Over the past couple of years, I've noticed more and more seed packets labeled as organic, usually at a slightly higher price point than the same seed that is not labeled organic. 
In some cases, though, I've noticed the organic version is significantly higher priced, as much as, you know, $1 or $2 per packet higher. As a home gardener, is there any reason I should spend the extra money for organic seeds? I use pretty much 100% organic methods in my garden, but since I have no concern about being certified organic, I don't see why I'd need to concern myself with this and, and pay extra for these organic seeds. I mean, I'm not going to eat the seeds, so, um, but maybe I'm overlooking something. So what say you, Jack? Thanks for the show, man. In a word, no. I know just a bunch of people went, oh, my God. No, no, no. I want you to think about this from a reality standpoint. I'm going to grow a jalapeno pepper. I want you to think in your head, the last time you saw pepper seeds, how tiny that pepper seed is. Let's say that that pepper was grown in the nastiest, most herbicide, pesticide-infested commercial growing operation there is. And here's the key. It wasn't. Because seed growers just don't do this. Okay? Uh, people that produce for seed set up to do so because it takes a lot of work to produce a pound of seed. That's why it's so expensive. Okay, but let's say that it was. Whatever can exist in that pepper plant you're going to grow is confined to the space and time relationship of that teeny tiny seed. And it, it can't grow. It can't expand. It can't become more. All it can become is less relative to the whole, and there ain't really nothing there anyway. Unless you're going to eat the seeds, I don't care, and you shouldn't either. And when you grow that plant, if it's an heirloom variety, an open-pollinated variety, and you save seed from it, that seed, if you grew it organic method, would now qualify to become organic seed, as long as everything else on your property was organic. Commercial organic growers are required to use organic seed if the variety that they're growing is commercially available in sufficient quantities to make it viable. If they are not available, say you want to start growing a variety that doesn't have enough commercial supply and you're a certified organic grower, if you use untreated conventional seed that's non-GMO, you can say it's organic even though it's not organic seed. So even the organic label doesn't require this unless it's you know, available. It is, I don't want to call it a scam, because a scam would be that they say it's organic seed and they charge you more for it, and it's not organic seed. Okay. Any belief that it's necessary or somehow beneficial to your backyard garden to use the pack that says organic over non-organic, it's kind of like this. There's an old-school headache medication called Excedrin. It's aspirin, Tylenol, and caffeine, which before Excedrin existed, that's what you did. You got a, an aspirin and a Tylenol, you, you drank a cup of coffee to get rid of your hangover. And one day, we were at the store, and we're looking at and my wife wanted to pick some of this up to put in our, our medical supplies, and she gets migraines. And there was a, a, the regular old green and white Excedrin, and there was a red box right next to it of Excedrin. And it had like a lightning bolt on it and said special migraine formula. And when you flipped them over and looked at the ingredients, the two of them were exactly the same. The same amount, the same quantity, the same three ingredients, and the same fillers, and nothing else. They were exactly the same, but the package was different. And it even said, when you read the fine print, in special migraine packaging, okay, they were even honest about it. Organic and inorganic, organic and not organic, conventional seed if they're non-GMO, etc., is, is not exactly the same, 
but it's close enough for all intents and purposes it is. Don't waste your money, but don't be afraid to buy organic seed either if you want to support the grower, if you want to support the company, etc. But if I'm going to buy 10 packets of seeds and they're $1.99 or $1.50 for the conventional and they're three or four bucks because it says organic, buddy, I'm not doing it, and I don't think you should either. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Chance Lunsford out of Pleasant Grove, Utah. Just got a couple tips for the upcoming gardening season. Number one is tepary beans. I grew these suckers a couple of years ago, and they sell seed, and they're super easy to grow, and they're great for dry climates because I watered them in the spring and then never touched them again. And by the time July rolled around, they were ready to roll, popping out the shells. The only problem is that they're really easy to pop out of the pods, and so you got to be careful when you're handling them or they drop. But they'll self-seed, uh, and they're quite tasty. Next is a company called Tradewinds Fruit. They have just about every kind of pepper or tomato and all kinds of tropical stuff and all kinds of wild things. Um, so it's a great company to check out. I bought from them before. Seeds worked out great, no problems. So those are my two tips. Oh, and one more thing, Amish land seeds. Cool hippie lady, grows a bunch of great heirloom beans and tomatoes. She's harvested some herself from, like, Ukrainians and Russians and stuff. She's got friends all over the world that she shares seeds with. So another great resource for some interesting tomatoes and beans and the like. All right, Jack, thanks a lot. Have a great day. Have a great day, TSP community, and I look forward to hearing every day. See you later. So good call and some good resources there. Let me uh, talk to you about temporary beans, for those of you that are not familiar with them. These are a native to uh, North America bean, uh, primarily from the desert south, southwest, south, wow, blah, tongue-tied today, Jack, the desert southwest region. And I grew these in Arkansas, and they did very, very well for me there. I haven't grown them here because you need space for them, and ducks eat the plants. But um, this is how they were traditionally grown. They would make a great big flat, almost like a rice paddy type situation in the deserts where they have these high deserts and these plateaus and messes like down in the lowlands. And they would wait for the, the, because you, even though it's the desert, you do get spring rains. And they would plant these temporary beans ahead of the spring rains. And pretty much you get spring rains, and that's a freaking desert. And it doesn't freaking rain again until fall. And they would just put these beans out, and they would grow through the desert with that one watering and basically a permaculture technique. Think of it like a giant, flat, huge field that acts like a swale that collects all the moisture coming down to one big water event. And it would give them plenty of time to get the deep roots down and get enough uh, vegetative mass up to cover the ground so the ground wasn't, so they were providing their own, basically, shade mulch. And a lot of these varieties that are available today go all the way back to those times. They've been, you know, bred line for line for line. So they are incredibly harder, hardy. And if you want beans, man, they're, they're a really awesome way to go, especially for a dried bean. Um, Next on the two uh, the two resources mentioned, Tradewind Fruits is awesome. I was on their website. I had to stop. I was just going through pepper varieties, and I'm like, Jack, you gotta stop looking at pretty pictures of hot peppers and do your damn show and get it done today because you got stuff to do outside when you get done. 
Stop. And I was like, you're still looking. You're looking at another page. Stop. The variety is, I'm not going to say the same varieties. I'm not going to say as much. It might be more. It might be less because I stopped myself. But it's on par with Baker Creek. I have reached out to Baker Creek about doing a discount for you guys over and over and over and over. And I'll tell you what bugs me. I've sent them a lot of business. They're a great company. I'm happy to support them. I've had Jerry Gettle on the air. I've had conversations with people there. I've sent in customer service requests, and I've got answers, so I know I have valid email addresses. Do you know what I don't get back? Sorry, we don't want to do that. That's all I would be looking for. Um, but I keep trying because, one, I actually love the company and what they do. I just pay 10 bucks for their catalog at the, at the Dollar General because I want to support them. But I also kind of like I want to get you guys a discount. I feel like there's enough of you out there to warrant it. Check out this trade in fruits. But get me through the weekend and through Monday. I'm going to reach out to these guys and see if they uh, if they wanted to do business with you. I might put a small test order in. I'm not going to wait for it to show up, but just to see if like it's a smooth order process. Does their uh, does their their system have a place for discount codes? Are they set up for it, uh, etc. Okay, on the Amish, Amishland uh, heirloom seeds, this, the hippie lady the guy talked about, um, I think she's got some really cool stuff, too, some really unique stuff, some stuff you just don't find in the bigger seed houses. If you see something there you want, go ahead and get it. I'm not even going to push for a discount there. Uh, her site looks like it was built in 95. Uh, she's using PayPal without a um, shopping cart. She can't even do an automated discount, and it's it's people like that. It's especially if they have two or three things, they can come up with a program for you. When they have like hundreds, it's it, it, she's not technologically capable of doing it in a way that's convenient for everybody, especially me. So I'm not going to look for a discount there, but I think she's got some cool stuff. And remember what I've said, the people we already have as discounters, and don't take anything I said negative about ba Baker Creek. I bought a shit ton from Baker Creek this year. It's not like I'm spiteful. Uh, and if I want something else they have that nobody else has, I'll order it. But with seed companies, spread your orders around. I actually got an email from the owner of Victory Seeds in a show where I mentioned him and many other people and put links to many other people and him. And he emailed me not only to thank me for mentioning him and promoting him, but for making the comment that you should spread your orders around to multiple seed companies to support these independent seed houses that are doing important work. And keep that in mind when you're buying something and Victory sells it, because out of everybody I've worked with, he's the only one I've heard from like that. And I'll tell you what that means. That means that after working with us for like six years, he still listens to the show every day. That's what it means. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Andy from Indiana. Uh, my question is about the time and space ROI of aquaponics details. I just moved to a uh, small in-town lot. Um, I'm intending to do a garden and had intended to use Nick Ferguson's method for, uh, you know, on contour beds and such. I can do that, uh, you know, basically for free because I have this stuff and it just will take my time and I'm pretty confident I can make a pretty. Okay. I did not cut off the collar. He fell off and that's okay because I get the point and I'll, I'll try to give you the best answer I can with this. In general, I'm going to say no matter what you do, Going into this year, this spring, pick one and do that. And if you want to do both, you know, the little, like I mentioned, the little girl from the Taco Bell commercial, why can't we have both, right? Um, great, but in your first year, if you've never gardened before, do one or the other. 
The ROI, I just recently did an episode where I talked about the ROI on aquaponics being very good. And in general, even a system that's several hundred dollars to six to eight hundred dollars, you probably have an ROI of about one year on getting your money back out of the system. Making some contour beds from the dirt that's available on the ground. Adding Now, you're not going to do it completely for free because you're going to need materials, mulch, compost, etc. Um, but it's going to be less. Your ROI is almost immediate. You're going to get a faster financial ROI, probably. Here's a couple things. How much time do you have to dedicate to this, including pulling weeds? I don't care what you do, you're going to have to pull weeds. And if you don't, they're going to show up and force. And you're going to go from, that's not that bad, to I'll do it this Saturday, to holy crap. I mean, that's, that is the bane of Gardner's existence. And it, it's, it's a constant. Um, are you going to be able to automate irrigation? Because if you're not... Depending on your climate, it could be a real pain in the ass. Do you live in a place where it rains a lot and it ain't that hot? You need to tell me where you live. You live in South Texas or even North Central Texas where I do, right? You better have irrigation. So that's a consideration. If I have aquaponics, my irrigation takes care of itself. So I think the benefit to an aquaponics system is high yield, low work. It costs more. But because of the nature of the system, you have to automate all of the essential functions. Once you have an aquaponic system in place, all you do is plant and harvest. That's it. And that's where it really shines through. However, if I had really lush soil, right, even with my aquaponics booming last year, I'd have probably a great big contour-based garden. I just don't have really lush soil, and I have all these little quacking birds that walk around and eat everything. So I made a decision based on my climate, my lifestyle, and the fundamental realities of the limitations of my property. And I think that's what you should do as well. You should make that decision. What excites you more? And what do you want to do first? Because there's nothing that prevents you from eventually saying, I'm going to go do contour garden beds this year, and maybe even this fall. I'm going to start building my aquaponics system for next year. And next year I'm going to do both and have both, like the cute little girl. You have the tortillas and the hard shells. Because what you may find is, well, I want to grow some corn, right? Well, that doesn't – you can do it with a wicking bed and aquaponics, but you don't really – it's not the space – you know, it, it, it's not a space ROI in aquaponics. But you may find a lot of things that you want to grow will do better for you in aquaponics. Pick one, do it first, and if you want to do the other one, Do it second. Those are my thoughts. If you put me in a small backyard situation, though, and I had to pick between doing one or the other, if I had no financial um, angst about the cost of the aquaponics system, I would do aquaponics. If you had asked me the same question before I had personally done it, even though I'd looked at many other people's systems, I would have said, no, I would do it in ground garden first. It's one of those things that I don't think you really get until you do it. And again, because there is a little bit of technical knowledge required, um, it seems more complicated than it is. It isn't that complicated. It's actually really easy to do, and it really does work. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my, that's my uh, proselytization for the world of aquaponics at this point in time. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it today. We sure had a large variety of topics and kind of moved quickly through them. And I appreciate you being with us today. 
Now, if you like this show and you want to support the work that we do and you want to do it in a painless way, you know what you can do, right? You can go to tspaz.com, tspaz.com, and you can help support the work we do every time you shop online uh, just by going there first. And when you get there, you can see all the reviews that I've done. They're all categorized by you know, cooking and tactical and homesteading and electronics and everything and see all the products that I recommend. Or you can just get on over and see the deals of the day over at Amazon. Um, but you can see my daily reviews as well. I brought a product back around again for you guys made by a company called Perfect Cook. It's the Perfect Cook Digital Instant Read Thermometer. This is so you can take the temperature of meat when you're cooking meat. Now, you can do other things with it, but that's the primary thing. Now, here's the misunderstanding about this product. Most people think we need one of these so that we don't undercook our meat and kill ourselves. You're not going to kill yourself with undercooked meat in America, and if you have meat that's so undercooked that it's dangerous, you're not going to want to eat it. Okay? Plain and simple. No, 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 friends. The real purpose. Now, with chicken, it's, it's actually very helpful because it's not like you're going to eat it when you find that it's raw in the middle. You've already taken it out. You, you kind of messed up your cooking sequence. So, yeah, it's, it's beneficial there. And that's the primary place I'm worried about not undercooking is chicken, especially whole bird. Um, but what I really use this for, like, every day almost is a steak or a pork chop or whatever to make sure it's cooked to the dundest that I want it done to but doesn't go past it. Because I am the believer that if you want your steak well done, you're going to cook the damn thing yourself. I want, I'll do medium well. I'll hold my nose. I'll accept your weirdness, but there'll be a little bit of pink left. You want it well done, you're going to do it yourself. Medium, medium rare, that's where steak shines. But with this thermometer, if you have that person that wants, I want mine medium well. You know, and I want mine medium, and I want mine rare, and I want mine rare. You can make four steaks at the same time. You can take the temperature each one, pull them when they hit their target temperature, let them rest, serve them all together. Everybody gets what they want as long as you don't mix them up. It is a quick, fast, affordable solution to a problem that most people create for themselves. The number one reason that meat doesn't give you what you're looking for As you cooked it too long. You can learn more in my review today at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and scroll down under today's episode. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. I have a song today by Dan Fogelberg. And if you've never heard this song, it, it, but you know Dan Fogelberg, it might be the only song like this from Dan Fogelberg that you've ever heard. Because uh, it's a much more faster tempo than you're used to from Dan who's classic singer-songwriter, kind of folk musician, kind of James Taylor-ish type of thing. Uh, but the other person I've always thought has a, a, a real similar sound and, and, and place uh, in music to Dan Fogelberg is um, Jackson Brown. And Jackson Brown has those classic folksy-sounding songs, but Jackson Brown also has songs that are more energetic and more angry. Okay, if you know some of his anti-war songs and things like that. Uh, and this, like, when you listen to this, you're like, that's Dan Fogelberg, but it, 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 it could be Jackson Brown, right? Um, it's called Blind to the Truth, and it's basically about how we're screwing up Everything in the world, the rainforests, the soil, the oceans, you name it. This was released back in 1990. So it's one of the later things that, uh, that Dan did. And, uh, of course, he's passed away quite a while now. 
And I, I think actually, though, that if, if he were still around, he might be a little less angry today. It, I think we've actually, on some of the issues in this song, we've made some progress. We certainly have problems with destroying soil, the dead zone in the, in the, uh, the Gulf of Mexico, etc. But I think the bigger thing in this song, what this is really about, is when you say blind to the truth, you hear anger. I think there's a curse word or two in here. It's probably the only song you'll ever hear Dan Fogelberg cursing. Um, but the blindness is almost a blindness of necessity for most people who are just trying to get through their lives. And you can see someone like Dan who cared so much about nature and the environment getting angry like this. But like I said, it kind of goes back to the caller that talked about automation and being afraid. Anger and fear like lead to the dark side. No, anger and fear have a place, but unless they lead to action within your circle of influence, they really don't serve much of a purpose. And we can sit around being blind and ignore what's going on, or we can step up and be a tiny little piece of a solution. And if it takes anger or fear or concern to motivate us to do that, then that's fine. But the quicker you let go of that and grab onto, I'm doing this because it works, I'm doing this because it makes sense, I'm doing this because it's what I can do. The quicker you actually begin to live a more fulfilling life, and you can lead a life with eyes wide open. And with those wide open eyes, you can see things that you're not happy about. But you can also accept the things that you, at this point, do not have the ability to influence. And focus on the things that you do. And that's the only solution, because the entire concept about being blind to the truth goes back to people feeling so overwhelmed that even though they know that in the end this is not good, they just accept it as the way that it is, and they do it in such a way that leads to apathetic apathy. Just going to be part of the system, and I wish it could change, but it can't. And when I talk about using apathy in the world as a weapon, people think that's what I'm talking about because they don't know the difference. When we express proactive apathy which is, I don't give a shit about something I can't change, because there's no point. But if it's something that matters, then I say, well, what piece of that can I change? And we put 100% of our action into that which we can influence. And in some ways, even if we can see it, when it comes to the action column, turn our backs on the things that we can't. It leads to less anger and more solution. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Spend
snicker. And they watched the puppets. 